please join me for the prayer of illumination. Everlasting God, you are the one true God, and there is no other. Father, we praise you this Sunday morning. We know, Lord, that you see all in the past that was hidden. You see all in the future that will happen, that shall be hidden. We pray today for hidden knowledge. We pray today that you would lead us in this message, that you would show us what we need to see, that you would light for us those dark places in our minds and in our souls that we need to work on, that we need help with. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding and light our path with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today's passage is from Revelations chapter 22. Huh, there we go. It's the end of the Bible. So you can read the rest of it, but it basically says we win. 22, 16 through 17. It is I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride says, come, and let everyone who hears say, come, and let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. Word of God for the people of God. We are in the middle of a sermon series. His story. We're exploring the history of the church. Last week we looked at uh, the Acts Church, the first church, and we looked at some stories in the Bible about the first evangelists, and they weren't perfect, they made mistakes, but they were human, and God chose to use them to build God's church here on this earth. We're moving on to the next logical, in my mind anyway, step. And that is the formation, the history of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. The goal is to help us understand where God has shown up throughout the history. So we're going to do that today. And then next Sunday, we're going to talk about the history of this church, St. Timothy Cumberland Presbyterian Church. I'm asking our historian, a resident historian, to join us today, um, Dan Washman. And we're going to be talking about the history of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church this week. The idea is at the end of this, we have this sermon and the next one, and then the sermon after that we will be talking, we'll be vision casting, I guess for lack of a better term, we're going to be looking about where God wants us to be in the future as a church. So, um, Dan, if you could just join us here and yeah, grab a mic, and uh, we kind of went through this already, so I took some notes here, and I'm not going to throw any surprise questions at him. We rehearsed yes. a little bit. So um, 
let's start with, start telling me about um, where this whole Cumberland Presbyterian movement happened. What, what time in the history of this earth was this church formed? It's an outgrowth of the movement of the population in North America and in the United States specifically. Uh, always moving west. Couldn't go east because then you'd be in the ocean. <laughs> so they're always moving west where there's more land available. Sometimes it was land that they didn't pay for. They just claimed it. Other times it was property that they paid, that they bought, created farms, uh, raised their families. And the farther west they went, the farther away from institutions uh, uh, they, they became farther away from institutions, such as churches. There's always a remnant. There's always a small group that carries on no matter what the circumstances are. So as these people were moving west, there were people of faith who practiced their faith, but in a lot of communities they were more or less in the minority because it's hard work to be a farmer. Uh, you miss a couple of Sundays and then you miss four or five more Sundays and then you miss a couple of years. Uh, but there's always a group of people who are attentive and faithful. And so ministers went with them. They preached as the need arose. They established congregations sometimes that didn't meet every week, maybe once a month, but they established congregations. The farther west people went, the farther away from institutions were they. And it resulted in people being ordained to preach without having gone through classical seminary education. In the Presbyterian Church, the, the classical education was very valuable. It was the desired route to the pulpit. On the frontier, that was just impossible. So a rift developed between those in the eastern part, the more settled part, the more civilized part of the country, and the, the out west, uh, people who lived in the outlands, they dressed not matching. Their behavior sometimes was a little bit erratic and, and extreme, and that's where we get the term outlandish. So the outlanders were not fitting the form that the Easterners expected them to. Also, on the frontier, it was very hard to attract people to worship using the traditional Presbyterian Calvinistic idea of God knows who's going to heaven and who's not. That doesn't make people want to go to church. I may not be among those chosen people, the elect people, so I don't want to go. The frontier preachers were saying, it's anyone who responds to God's invitation. It's anyone, oh, it might be whosoever will attend, respond. This rift became very open in the late uh, 1700s, early 1800s. On the frontier, 
there were extended revival services that were held after the, the spring planting is done and before the fall harvest is undertaken. So it's, it's in the summer. You might travel four, five, six, ten miles to get to one of these meetings, uh, and they were held outdoors. There were not a lot of church buildings. Uh, Pastor mentioned earlier, imagine the noise that the children made when they came to Jesus, when they came into his presence, and they're all wanting to touch him and talk to him. And Jesus' followers said, go away, you bother him. Well, that sort of happened on those frontier revival meetings. You pack up your family. You're going to be gone from the farm for several days. So you pack up your family. You load up your wagon with food and bedding. Uh, you take a chicken with you because you want eggs for breakfast. You might butcher a hog before you leave so that you've got some meat. Uh, you've got to have livestock to haul those wagons, to pull them across the miles. Uh, it could be horses, it could be mules, it could be oxen. And once you get to the campgrounds, they have to be staked out on the edge of the campgrounds. They have to be fed. At the campground, you're going to have several ministers of different denominations, as the pastor mentioned earlier, groups of people who believe the same way. And in these particular camp meetings, you had a lot of people who were not quite yet believers. They were curious. They knew something was missing, but they didn't know what. And so they go and they listen to these preachers who are preaching all day and all night, sometimes simultaneously. The Methodists in one corner, Baptists in another corner, Presbyterians in another corner, people that didn't even have names as far as the denomination, preaching in another <coughs> corner. And they're all preaching at the same time. They don't have microphones and amps. And so they're shouting to these people who are gathered around to listen to them. And in that noise level of the animals, of the kids screaming and yelling and running and playing, of the, the people who are responding to the word that is preached to them, and they begin to shout in their joy. I think the lesson, I mean, the, the lyric today was, Whosoever will shout, shout the sound. Huh. Uh, that's all taking place at one time. So uh, when I would teach this in my classes in high school history, uh, I would try to get them to imagine this noise pitch. And one time one student said, oh, a religious Lollapalooza. Uh, and I said, well, yeah, for lack of a better term, that's what was going on. The people in the East were very nervous about that, and they said, you must stop it. And the frontier preacher said, you know, we have to. We have to uh -huh. do this. This is what we're called to do. This is what we must do. So this is part of a great awakening yes. uh, in the nation the, as a whole. Yes, there, there was a great awakening in Europe in the 1740s and then in America in the early 1800s. And historically, we call it the Second Great Awakening. Second, right. Great. Tell me about this log cabin. McAdoo. <laughs> McAdoo's log cabin. Uh, there is a replica in a state park in Tennessee at the location where he lived. Uh, he was one of the, the revival ministers, one of the frontier ministers in the Presbyterian group. Uh, uh, 
who had moved away, he was a little bit discouraged uh, and uh, intimidated to a degree. And he had moved away from where the, the hotbed of those camp meetings were being held, moved farther interior into the West and established a farm uh, and was living there, hopefully to kind of restore himself and to recover. Uh, he was still committed to the idea that there had to be some changes made. Uh, his two other ordained ministers, uh, who also were of like mind, made contact with him and said, we're going to come to your house. We're going to travel to your house, and we're going to first pray. And we're going we're gonna to solve this problem. They took with them a candidate for the ministry who was not ordained, but he was undergoing uh, teaching by these frontier preachers. He did not go back east to the seminary. And they all went to McAdoo's cabin. It was in the winter, in February. Uh, I've heard a narrative. I've not read it, but I've heard a narrative by someone else who said, you know, in Tennessee, middle Tennessee, in February, it's cold. There could have been ice on the roads. Uh, by the time they got there, it was it was close to dark, so they'd traveled a, quite a while. And as they came over the ridge, they saw McAdoo's cabin. They spent the night there. They prayed all night. The next day, McAdoo said, I'm ready. And so they decided at that point to establish a new presbytery because there were three ministers, and you have to have three ministers, three congregations, to establish a presbytery. And they named it uh, for the Cumberland Mountain region. They still believed in the Presbyterian form of government, but their approach was going to be different, and so they, they named this new presbytery the Cumberland Presbytery. Cool. Very good. Um, I, so there, there's... I, I want to um, address... This was going on during the Civil War. No. Well, okay. Immediately after the Revolution. After the Revolution. Yeah. Let's let's skip for. You're right. Okay. I'm going to my notes, and but we. I do want us to address. That you said something about um, during the Civil War, and and um, and and let's talk a little bit about the Black churches, and let's talk about. You told me that the Cumberland Presbyterian Church was one of the few churches, or probably one of the only churches that did not split during that time. Tell me more about yes. that. Flesh that out. <clears throat> Once the Cumberland Presbyterian Church officially established itself, created a presbytery, and then began to work on revising the confession of faith to meet the whosoever will doctrine, uh, that was accomplished late 1820s. By that time in the United States, there was a sizable abolition movement, mostly in the East and in the North. Uh, the Methodist Church, the Baptist Church, the Episcopal Church, uh, all found themselves, based on their location, their geographical location, found themselves on one side or the other of the question of abolition. And they all, those three denominations and some smaller ones split over the issue. Are we going to continue to practice a slave economy? Are we going to set slaves free and move on from there? 
That's why today we often talk about the Southern Baptist Church. Uh, we talk about the Methodist Church because mm, uh, 18, uh, 1950s, they dropped that name and redeveloped a, a larger uh, Methodist denomination. But if you go 30 miles that direction, magically enough, there is a Southern Methodist University, and that's you know, a, a birth of that movement, of that split. The Cumberland Presbyterian Church did not split organizationally. Now, there were Cumberlands who were abolitionists, there were Cumberlands who were slaveholders, but they were able to keep the, the denomination itself united and functioning in the lead up to the Civil War. During the Civil War, the General Assembly met every year. Travel was very difficult. Most of the, the southern churches uh, found it difficult to get delegates to go, but some were able to do so. The General Assemblies met either in uh, uh, a northern state like Indiana or Illinois or a border state like Missouri, which was within itself split on the abolition issue. But uh, the CP Church maintained itself as a unified organization during the Civil War. Um, tell me, tell me real briefly about, um, uh, how are, um, the, the Native Americans, the, the Choctaw, um, Presbytery. Tell me a little bit about that, and then let's move into, uh, from there. Let's, we're, I know we're bouncing back and forth, but I wanted us to address a little bit of that. And then I want us to bounce it back over to the children's home and the formation of that. Okay. Uh, you may remember from your school, from your history classes, uh, and we're familiar with the term, uh, the Trail of Tears. In the 1820s, early 1830s, uh, landowners in the southeastern part of the country, starting in Georgia, uh, northern Mississippi, wanted more land. They had bought up and claimed as much as they could but there was land that was still occupied by tribes. Uh, so there was a, a, a big political push to get control of those lands. Uh, Andrew Jackson was a Tennessean. He was president uh, at this time that, that we're thinking of, and he was able to convince Congress to pass a law to resettle what were called then, and historically now are still called the five civilized tribes. Mostly, uh, again, in the southeastern part of the country, and they were considered civilized because they had the, the five cornerstones of civilization. First of all, they had become Christian through missionary work of the Europeans and, and Americans. They had a distinct written language. Because they had a written language, they were able to create a formal uh, political entity. They wrote constitutions for their tribes. They conducted trade uh, as their economy rather than going out and hunting and gathering like the Plains tribes were doing. Uh, so they were, they were meeting the marks of civilization. That didn't get them a lot of favor with the, the people in the Southeast. So the solution was to resettle them 
farther west in the outlands, farther away from uh, the Anglo-Americans, uh, and then there would not be a conflict. The Choctaw and the Cherokees of the, the five civilized tribes, those two tribes seem to be the most of the civilized tribes. Uh, and Cumberlands had already moved into northern Mississippi uh, conducting ministry work with the, the Choctaws and the Cherokees. It's unknown for sure, but I can imagine that probably in that trail of tears where they were forcibly removed under guard, probably some of the Cumberland missionaries traveled with them and maybe even some had gone on ahead knowing that this was being undertaken and were there to greet them. Uh, they were assigned territory uh, that later becomes a part of Oklahoma, the state of Oklahoma. Uh, because of the, especially with the Choctaw tribe, because of their connection with the Cumberland Church, uh, they were more, uh, more likely to receive ministry work. They knew who God was. They knew the story of Jesus as Savior of all mankind. They adopted the whosoever will doctrine. And they have, um, I don't want to say enjoyed, but they have benefited maybe from that historical connection. One of the, the leading uh, persons in the Choctaw Nation today is the wife, widow of a Cumberland Church uh, uh, minister. Uh, they were Native Americans. And once listening to a conversation she was having with someone else, they asked her, well, when, when did y'all get to leave the reservation? And she stiffened a little bit and she said, we were never on a reservation. That was the land we were given. That was our nation. We oh. came and went when we wanted to. Okay. A little bit about the children's home, and then and then let's conclude with the um, what you called the big steal. <laughs> okay. Um, the children's home was established in Kentucky originally. Um, there was uh, a movement here in Tarrant County and Fort Worth to attract the home to this area. Um, the original children's home was just in a residential facility, a house. Uh, and in that time period, uh, in the early 1930s, we're in the Depression and there were a lot of children who were either abandoned or orphaned because their parents died early deaths because of hard work, uh, depression perhaps. And so there was need for more space. There was a member of the Cumberland Church in Fort Worth who proposed to relocate the, the children's home to Fort Worth. Uh, he was one of the contract, actually the builder of a first, pre, first Cumberland Presbyterian Church that was built in 1926. He owned some lots adjacent to that church building and he offered those lots to the uh, children's home if it would relocate uh, for whatever reason and I've not researched it but for whatever reason the decision was not to locate the children's home in Fort Worth but in Denton uh, 
uh, and those lots then were sold off. The Fort Worth lots were sold off. But there was that connection between First Cumberland and Fort Worth and the children's home in Denton that uh, has endured today through this congregation. We, we do quite a bit of, of uh, work with the, the, what's now called the, and I don't know the full name. I'll still call it the children's home. But Cumberland Youth, youth, and, ser family youth and Family Services. Yeah. Because its scope has grown past yeah. just children. Now, that was in the 1930s. In the 1940s, you know, well, I'll back up a little bit. In the 1930s, for a lot of uh, churches, it was difficult to remain uh, on a, a, a schedule that they always had been. And I think in terms of, of two years ago when the virus came along and churches had to close, you know, not because we were ordered to, but because we felt like that was safer for everyone's health. How do you re-gear? How do you gear up after that's over with? And so a lot of churches in that time period in the 30s struggled with that as well. Hmm. Now, where were we going back? Let's, let's, uh, let's talk about the big steel and conclude okay. with that. There was an attempt in the early 1900s to reunite the Cumberland Presbyterian Church with the, the Presbyterian Church in the United States. Those who wanted to, to reunite those two denominations emphasized that the Presbyterian Church was not as adamant. They didn't give it up, but they were not as adamant of preaching this idea that some people are not going to go to heaven no matter how good they are because God knows who's going to go to heaven and who's not. And those who were not in favor of that we're still saying no, the Cumberland Confession of Faith says this. And so there was a big political uh, conflict in the early 1900s that resulted in uh, a partial union, partial reunion of the two denominations. In 1906, uh, it was determined, it was announced at the General Assembly that the union had been effected. It, it was accomplished. There were uh, some who wanted to remain a remnant, if you will, who wanted to continue the Cumberland Presbyterian work. And at that 1906 meeting when the, the merger was announced from the, the moderator's position, a delegate to the assembly by the name of Fusel, Joseph Fusel, said, Know now and ever that somewhere in the sunlight of God's love, the Cumberland Presbyterian Church will live on. For the Unionists, that probably sounded like a declaration of war. And so even though uh, there was the attempted merger, there was a lot of animosity between the two groups for several years. Question over who owned the properties was a very uh, big part of this, this concern and this partial union. Uh, the unionists took the Cumberland Presbyterians to court. They tried to get the courts to rule that you could not use the name Cumberland Presbyterian, that it was, it was no longer. Uh, 
And so every institution that had, own, had been owned and operated by the Cumberland Presbyterians was no longer CP. Uh, I believe there were six, at that time, there were six colleges that the Cumberland Presbyterian Church was operating. Five of those were lost in the big steel, if you want to use that term. And That's your term. Some old Cumberlands still do. Uh, but they were ruled that they were the property of this Union Church. The only one that was retained by the Cumberland Presbyterian Church was Bethel College, which is today called Bethel University. It's in the middle part of Tennessee, close to where um, uh, McAdoo and the others were when they created their, their new presbytery. Church buildings were at question as to who owned it. Uh, in some cases, uh, the Unionist padlocked the, the buildings so that the Cumberland faithful could not go to worship there. In other cases, uh, at least two stories that I've heard, and, and I believe both of them are probably true, uh, women, besides what did they have to do? They didn't go to work. Women sat on the church house steps with shotguns to keep the Unionists from coming and locking the doors. Wow. By 19, I believe it's 1960, the uh, Cumberland Presbyterian General Assembly was held at Trinity University in San Antonio, which was Cumberland at one time. Uh, and also uh, the Presbyterian Church held its General Assembly in San Antonio. They were not concurrent. They were not the same dates, but they were, I think, one preceded the other by a week. And the Presbyterian Church sent an apology and said, we realize what we did did not help things, and it should not have been done. There are still two denominations, but the animosity has been softened. I was at a Christian ed workshop one time that met in, at First Presbyterian downtown Fort Worth, which had been Cumberland at one time and was taken. Um, because it was a CE event, you had to have a dinner the night before the real event. And so I got my plate of spaghetti and I sat down at a table and this gentleman came and sat down across from me because at that time I was the only one at the table and we introduced ourselves and I said, I'm from the Cumberland Presbyterian Church and he kind of looked around and he leaned forward and he said, you all do it right. <laughs> so there, there are better relations between the two denominations today. Uh, now, going back to the idea of that property issue, just like with the question of who should be ordained, what kind of education and training should they have, the farther west the ministers went, the less formal their education was. The same basic idea uh, influenced the property ownership. The farther west, those Cumberland churches were more likely to vote to join the union and the farther west, the courts were more likely to rule in favor of the Union Church. Uh, it rendered the, the CP Church basically a South and Southeastern denomination as it 
was in the beginning, uh, but it has survived. There were remnants, and there were always remnants in places where there had been a much larger Cumberland ministry witness. So next week, I want us to pick up on this this theme that, that kept coming up, this remnant understanding, mm -hmm. and uh, continue the conversation as it relates to um, how this church was formed. Okay. So thank you. Thank you.